The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So we continue in the book of James. Next week we'll have a testimonial pertinent to the truths in the book of James. And then after that week we'll be able to conclude chapter 1. So today we're looking at verses in chapter 1, 22 to 25. And it's tempting as you're reading the book of James because sometimes it reads so much like the book of Proverbs that you want to pull one or two verses out and kind of isolate it and have it stand on its own as though it doesn't relate to what was just before or what follows. But that's not true of James. As a matter of fact, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 27 uh, go together. Even though they're proverbial in the way they're stated at times, it's really actually a running kind of a narrative and theological discussion, one point building on the next. And there is one theme that runs throughout, and the theme that runs throughout all of chapter 1 has to do with uh, trials and temptations in life. And then God's solutions to those trials and temptations. And some of our weaknesses or vulnerabilities in terms of how we face trials and temptations as believers. So we don't want to uh, dismantle isolated verses in James, we want to keep the whole thing coherent. James chapter 1 and God's trying to encourage us as believers on how to deal with trials and temptations in a God-honoring way uh, because we are vulnerable as humans to temptation. Paul reminded us, as did James, that we all are tempted and we all endure trials continually, constantly, just a part of life. And the temp- So what James is getting at here is, you know, these believers, they've been around waiting for Jesus to return for 15 years. And this is like, wow, this is taking forever. As a matter of fact, he'll say that later in the book. Be patient in the return of the Lord. Because their expectation was that he would turn quickly. So they thought one week later after the ascension. It's been 15 years now. And in the meantime, they've had to live the drudgery of life, which is hard. Filled with trials and temptations. And that's the way it is. That's the Christian life. And so because we are weak and finite and walk with feet of clay, the temptation as we live life is to get bogged down, weighed down, pressed in the midst of life's trials and temptations. We we are all susceptible and vulnerable to caving under the trials of life. And that's why James writes this chapter, all of us are, what happens when we have to endure trials and temptations of life over and over again repeatedly? Uh, Well, sometimes we are tempted to not persevere, all of us, that's a temptation. Uh, also, we are tempted to stop doing what we know is right. We also fall prey to losing steam, enthusiasm, hope, even becoming depressed, cynical. Cynical. I've many times reflected my life after being a Christian for 20 to 25 years versus when I was a brand new Christian the first year I got saved when I was 19. Different attitudes sometimes. More cynical now than as a new, fresh believer. Trials of life can do that to you. Even wavering in faith, the trials of life can make us stop praying, uh, can tempt us to stop trusting God. Trials of life can even tempt us to start blaming God and others for our problems. Trials of life can make us vulnerable to stop talking to God in prayer. Or, and not listening to the Word and taking it in, or even dismissing the Word. So we're all vulnerable to this. And even we get to a point where we just stop doing the Word. What we intellectually know to be true, what we were committed to previously, we can get to that point. Stop doing the Word. I just ran through the chronology of James and his argument in James chapter 1 in the midst of trials and temptations. That's what happens to us. That's why he keeps every five verses comes back with this imperative reminding us of what we need to do in light of our trials and temptations. So today we look at verses 22 uh, to 25, keeping in mind that the context is trials and temptations. The life is hard. So let's go ahead and read it. Uh, but I'm going to start at verse 19 and take us through to give us a little bit of context from last week as he's talking about trials and temptations and God's solution through the power of his word, obedience to the word, listening to the word, appropriating the word understanding carefully an attentive listener to the truth in the Word. Verse 19, this you know. This you know, Christian, you know this. My beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear the Word of God, slow to speak flippantly about your thoughts about the Word of God, and slow to anger in response to 
the word of God and its requirements at times. Verse 20, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, Christian, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, because we are sinful, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, which in fact did save your soul if you're a believer. Your response to the word of God. Receive it with humility. Do what the Bible says. Verse 22. Then he changes his emphasis a little bit. Not just, don't just be a good hearer of the Word, but be a good doer of the Word too after you hear it in the appropriate manner. So he makes a contrast here. Verse 22 to 25. But prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror and for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. So last week we saw how he puts an emphasis on being a good, attentive, true hearer, taking in the Word of God in the right way, with the right attitude, being a good listener. And he, and he warned us not to be uh, uh, quick to speak. In other words, give our flippant opinions about the Bible. So don't be quick to speak, but rather be quick to do the word based on what you heard. So that's the emphasis here. So let's go ahead and look at it on doers of the word. On the outline there, just by way of introduction, I said this. Uh, Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. James 1.22. And by the way, James 1.22 is is really kind of a distilled summary of James's whole epistle. Being a doer of the Word. Now, the Word is God's revealed truth to humanity. What the Word says, God says. To obey the Word, or Scripture, is to obey God. To dismiss the Word, or to dismiss Scripture, is to disobey God. Believers, aided by the indwelling Holy Spirit and living by faith in God's Word, have the ability to obey God at His Word. That's an amazing truth, by the way. Before we get into this command to obey the Word of God, uh, up front, clearly, we need to understand that the only people who can truly obey God's Word, the only people who can obey Scripture the way God intended it to be obeyed are born-again believers, Christians. Unbelievers cannot obey the Word of God fully the way God intended it to be given because we need to be born again. And we need to obey Scripture with God's help, God's power, God's grace, God's mercy, God's provision. So up front, uh, this is not a message for somebody who's an unbeliever in terms of obeying Scripture because they can't without God's help. They can't obey. First, what an unbeliever needs to obey is the command of Scripture to, to repent of sin and turn to Christ. That's where it starts for the unbeliever. They, need, they can obey Christ by repenting of their sin, believing in the gospel, and God provides the grace for unbelievers to do that. Once we become a Christian, the rest of us have a supernatural ability actually to obey God and His Word. It's, it's amazing. Uh, as a matter of fact, in James 1, 19-21, the emphasis there is on justification, the Word which is able to save your souls, and now James is transitioning on to sanctification for believers living in light of the Word and in obedience to the Word. So this is for believers. We are able, we have the ability to obey God's Word. And so just from these few verses, I just tried to summarize three principles that we can hang our thoughts on. And the first one is the expectation for living the Word. There's an expectation from God. The expectation of living the Word of God, a command from God. God commands us to obey Scripture. It is expected. And if we don't obey Scripture, it is disobedience. If we don't obey Scripture, it is sin that we are accountable for. So that's the expectation. That's verse 22. James is talking to believers. These are people he probably pastored in Jerusalem. He knows they uh, know the Old Testament inside and out. He knows that they probably saw and heard the apostles preach themselves. Maybe many of them even witnessed Jesus personally on earth during his ministry. So they have a solid theological foundation. It's not just about taking it in and taking it in and taking it in and head knowledge. It is also, as a believer, about doing the Word of God, obeying. And so obeying the Word of God is a command by God given to believers. That is God's expectation. Let's go ahead and look at verse 22. It's amazing. Uh, but prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers 
who delude themselves. The verb in, the, in this verse, in the imperative, is from the verb, one of the verb forms of to be. And it's translated as prove yourselves. And it's present tense. And present tense in the Greek language, as an imperative, implies that this needs to be an ongoing, regular, routine responsibility for believers. Actually, this is a lifestyle expected of us. God just expects us to obey His Word, to do His Word. Present tense. It's an imperative. It is not an option. It's not the ten suggestions, as they say of the Old Testament. They're the ten commandments. The same is true of all the imperatives in the New Testament. These are commandments to be obeyed, not options to be considered. Prove yourselves doers of the Word. Continually present tense as a lifestyle. The reason this is so huge, even in our recent generation, you may or may not be familiar with it, but in the middle of the 1980s, at the end of the 1980s, for the next 20 years, there was a huge controversy in the evangelical world on the lordship controversy. I don't know if you are familiar with it, but it was really simple. There were people, uh, Bible teachers and evangelicals, on one side saying, uh, all you need to do if, is, if you're a Christian is just get saved, become a Christian, that's it. And then there were others on the other side saying, well, yeah, you do need to get saved, but once you get saved... As a Christian, you are obligated to continue to obey God's Word and actually produce spiritual fruit in your life. And you need to live to Jesus because He is Lord. You are a slave. He is the Master. And we obey everything the Master calls us to do. That was the expectation. But then others on the non-Lordship side were saying, no, you're not obligated to. Jesus is your Savior. And maybe sometime later in your life, you make Him Lord if you ever get around to it. Literally, that was the debate. And so on one side, on the non-lordship side, it was you can be a Christian, literally, and get saved and actually never have any true spiritual fruit evident in your life. And that could go on for 20, 30, 40 years. But you're still saved. You just don't have any fruit in your life. Your life hasn't changed. You don't have any spiritual fruits. You might even have evil fruits. And the other side of the debate said, no. When you become a Christian, like Paul said in Corinthians, all things become new. You become a new creature. Old things pass away. God changes you on the inside and that becomes manifest on the outside through a changed behavior. And as a result, there are fruits in your life. Action fruit and attitude fruit. And that was the debate. The lordship controversy. And so this passage would definitely support those who believed in lordship salvation. That once God saves you, He actually changes you, gives you the Holy Spirit, then it enables you and me to live a holy life and produce good fruits in our life. Very important. So this is a command by God. We are obligated to obey God. And what do we obey God? How do we know we are obeying God or not? What is the standard? What do we obey? Where are the commands of God? Where are His expectations revealed to us? That's a huge question today. Here in America, even in evangelical Christianity, because depending upon what church you ask or what Bible teacher you ask, you're going to get different answers of how do I hear the voice of God? Where do I get the commands of God? How do I know what God wants me to do? Because some churches will say, well, it's uh, the Bible plus intuition or the Bible plus extra revelations that are going on or the Bible plus dreams that you might have or the Bible plus subjective experiences you might have. L really, that is routine. That is a problem because inevitably you'll have a discrepancy because you might have a dream or an intuition or a vision from God that actually conflicts with what Scripture says, then who do you obey? And they would suggest, well, you obey the vision because that's the more recent revelation of God. And literally, it's overriding Scripture. That can be devastating in terms of its consequences. So how do we know where God speaks? Where are His commandments? What do we obey when we say that we need to be obedient to God? And the answer is right here in James 1.22. It is we are doers of the Word. And the word here in the context of James is Scripture, written Scripture. James knew that. He was an apostle. He was writing uh, on behalf of God, of Jesus, to the church. God was using him to do that. So the context from James is that the word is synonymous with Scripture. And the rest of the apostles in the New Testament who wrote the New Testament, they say the same thing. The Scriptures are the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 makes that very clear. Scripture is the Word of God. So... How do we hear the voice of God? How do we know what to obey? What do we do? We do what is taught in Scripture. And for us, uh, in the New Testament, after the coming of Christ, we, are, we have been given the New Covenant. So for a priority for us is the New Testament as it has been revealed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is where it starts. 
And we interpret the Old Testament in light of the fulfillment of the New Testament. Very important. So it starts with the New Testament. It starts with Scripture as God has revealed it. It starts in the revelation of Jesus Christ, who He is. That's who we obey. So that's why I said to obey the Bible is to obey God. And today for us, to obey God is to obey Scripture. Not some subjective opinion I have or somebody else or a living prophet or a dream I had or intuition. Because inevitably you will contradict Scripture if you live your life that way. And then you're actually being, you'll be disobeying God. So that's why it says be doers of the Word. And he's going to get more specifically in defining what the Word is. So we do know that it's going to be Scripture as God has revealed it. Prove yourself doers on a regular basis of the Word of God for us as revealed in Scripture and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. By the way, doers of the Word is like a noun in that passage in verse 22. And the reason that's important is because it's synonymous for what a Christian is. A Christian is a doer of the Word. A believer is a doer of the Word. Somebody who's born again is a doer of the Word. And that's why non-lordship salvation doesn't make any sense because James says here, if you're a believer, you are in fact a doer of the Word. You are characterized by obeying God in Scripture. That's what you do. It's another name for you. If you're a believer, you're a doer of the Word. If I'm a believer, I'm a doer of the Word. That's who I am. I'm a disciple, a follower of Jesus, a slave of the Lord. I do His bidding. So I love that phrase and the way it's put in this unique noun form, a doer of the Word. So that's another name for Christian. I'm a doer of the Word. Not merely hearers who delude themselves. Because there are those who love to take it in, right? The Scripture. They're good students. They're diligent. They take notes. They even maybe know Hebrew and Greek or maybe they just love to read theology and they're taking it in and taking it in. Do you know it's easy to be a student of the Bible? As a matter of fact, I... That was true of me in seminary. I was full-time in seminary for three years. I wanted to be in seminary for the next 23 years. I loved it. I want more theology classes. I want uh, more stuff to study. I want to read more great books and hear more great lectures and be full-time doing it. And I don't want to do anything else. I just want to study and learn. This is awesome. And that's a danger for us. It was a danger for these people who knew Scripture, knew the Old Testament, saw the apostles, heard Jesus. They had all kinds of theological head knowledge. So the vulnerability was not doing the Word. That's why Paul reminded us in Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. And he's talking about theological knowledge. Taking it in, taking it in, taking it in, and our our knowledge base gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and our head gets so big we can't even move, we don't even do what we've learned. That's why uh, James is reminding us, don't just be a listener of the Word all the time. If you're just taking it in and taking it in and taking it in and hearing good sermons all the time. And as a matter of fact, I was reading one commentary by a pastor as a great reminder, and he is very theologically oriented. And he just, from a pastoral's perspective, he said, uh, we've got to warn those people in the Christian community. They, they can't just be taking in the Word of God all the time and be content with that. And today there's a phenomenon of people just staying home uh, in their living rooms, listening to great sermons and watching great sermons by the greatest preachers in the world. And that's church. That's what they do. They just listen to the Word of God. Intake, intake, intake. Separating themselves from the body of Christ where you've got to roll up your sleeves and it gets ugly and you've actually got to implement what the Bible says. That's hard to do. That was a great reminder. Because that's where we can be vulnerable or any church that is getting Bible teaching on a regular basis. It's a temptation for all of us. So he says as a result, don't be merely hearers. You know what a hearer is? It's an, someone who audits a class. And I have, I'm teaching a class right now and I've been a teacher uh, at different, in different contexts. And there are times where you have an auditor. And an auditor, sometimes actually the school will require them to pay some tuition But what's the expectation? They just come in and they're simply a spectator. And all they do is listen. They don't have to do the homework. They don't have to do the assignments. They don't have to take the quizzes. They don't have to take the tests. They just can come and listen and be a spectator. That's exactly what James is saying. Uh, We aren't auditors. If we're believers, we are not auditors of God's truth. We don't just listen. Passive spectators. No, no, no. That is not a Christian. As a Christian, you are a doer of the Word. Don't just be an auditor. Now, I'm not saying that auditing college classes is a bad thing. Auditing is okay in certain contexts. I must admit, I have been an auditor once or twice, uh, like in college or wherever. That's fine. But as a Christian, that is not an option, being simply a hearer. And by the way, if you call yourself a Christian and you're a professing believer, and we do have this problem uh, throughout, and we will forever uh, in the church because Jesus warned us and told us that you will always have weeds among the wheat. You will have the hearers only mixed up with the doers. And the hearers only... They look like doers, 
They use the same vocabulary. They use the same words. They read the same Bible. They hear the same sermons. Sometimes they dress even just like Christians, talk like Christians. But we can only see the outside. We can't make a distinction of what's going on in the heart. Only God can. And Jesus warned us. We will always have the weeds among the wheat. And many times then the specific plants that Jesus was talking about, at least in Palestine, the specific plants he was referring to, when the plants were just budding out of the ground, when they were very small and about an inch high, the weeds looked identical to the the plant or the wheat. That's why he said you you can't pluck it up because you might pluck up the wrong thing. Leave the plucking and the making distinctions to God at the end of the age. So we're always going to have auditors who look Christian, sound Christian. And that's going to be a problem in the church. And what is wrong with these people who listen to the Bible, embrace the Bible, say they believe in the Bible, but they're not doing the Bible. They are deluding themselves. They are self-deceived. That's what James says at the end of verse 22. And that's, that's probably the most dangerous kind of deception is being self-deceived. Because you're deceived and people know you're going down the wrong path and the trajectory doesn't look good. And man, they're headed to destruction and they don't even know it. As a matter of fact, they don't realize they're deceived. As a matter of fact, they think they're pretty good. That's why it's called deception. So very dangerous. So this is a great warning from James for all of us who truly know God and love His Word. We are commanded to and obligated to obey and be a doer of His Word as a lifestyle and a practice. Point number two. After the expectation for living the Word as a command is number two, the illustration of not living the Word. So here's the expectation. We need to obey God's Word all the time. James gives a practical illustration to show what it's like of somebody who doesn't obey the Word. And he uses this illustration. Uh, For if anyone is a hearer or an auditor of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man or a woman who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. That's someone who's just simply an auditor. And what's going on here in the illustration, the mirror, by the way, at the end of verse 23, the mirror is the Bible. The mirror is the Scripture. The mirror is what we look into. The mirror is what we read and examine. So you've got this guy is actually looking at the Bible, reading the Bible, listening to Scripture, complying with Scripture, or agreeing to it, at least on a superficial, initial level. So the mirror is the Scripture. And there are two kinds of people that look into the Scripture. Professing believers who maybe not even be believers and professing believers who are indeed believers. And in verse 22 and 23 is an illustration of somebody, or 23 and 24, somebody who's a professing believer and probably deceived and maybe not even be saved at all. Yet they look at Scripture. They're not antithetical. They don't resist Scripture. They don't want to burn the Bible. These people are in church. These people give to church. These people sometimes serve in church. They call themselves Christians. They talk like Christians. So here's the guy. He looks in the mirror. Uh, by the way, it's kind of important to note, verse 23 and 25, both use, at least in the New American Standard, both use the word looks. So the shallow guy in verse 23, he looks into the mirror. And then in verse 25, the real believer also looks into the mirror. In your Greek text, in verse 23 and verse 25, there are two totally different words for look. In verse 23, it's a guy who's just kind of looking in the mirror and checking himself out, somewhat of a superficial way, but he, you know he's looking, he's examining. And his main intent there is the image in the mirror. He's looking at the mirror, and then he's gone and, gives, and doesn't give it a second thought. He just immediately forgets what he saw. Verse 25, the word for look, is a very specific word. It's used in the Gospels for Peter when he got to the cave where the grave clothes were. And it says he bent down carefully and examined and looked, looking for Jesus and looking at the grave clothes. So it was, it was bending down, getting close, examining very carefully from all facets to make a specific deduction and conclusion and to take action as a result. That's the context by which Peter is describing the same thing with John and Mary when they bent down and looked into the cave or whatever it was where Jesus was buried. Two totally different words. So you've got a superficial, shallow believer or a fake believer and a real believer even look at and interpret and study and expect different things from Scripture. Even the way we examine it, read it, take it in, process it, and our expectations of it is different. But both parties are agreeable to Scripture. I like the Bible. So that's important. How they look. And the mirror, like I said, is... Scripture. So for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, 
He is like a man who looks somewhat superficially in the mirror and then boom, he's out of there. And the key in verse 24, what is it that he does? He looked in the mirror and then he just forgot what it said. If there was a command there, he forgot about it, totally ignored it. He's not going to apply it to his life or her life. So the difference between the two in the illustration, those, uh, the one who looks somewhat superficially goes away and forgets versus the true believer who cares and is sensitive to the spirit and wants to obey God's word is the true believer doesn't just give it a superficial quick look. It is intent. It is deep. It is truly understanding, wanting to understand what God is saying in His Word and what my obligation is as a result. Did you know that for us as believers, every time we read Scripture or hear Scripture, Scripture demands a response from us. Isn't that amazing? It is. Scripture demands a response from us every time we see it or hear it. It doesn't matter what verse you're in. Even if the verse is not an imperative or a command. Maybe it's just narrative. And we read a story out of the book of Acts and something amazing that God did. If you're a believer, a response is required. Praise and adoration to God. Something. That is God's intent because God's Word is living and active. And when we take it in, it pierces our heart, our mind, our conscience, our soul. The living Word of God. So really the difference between these two and how they look at the Word and how they respond to the Word, the first person who's shallow, it's like he's at a museum and he's just walking from one work of art to the next. And, he's like, and so the Bible and Scripture is like an artifact. or it's, it's like a museum piece. You look at it and say, oh, that's cool. I can appreciate That's awesome. I love this museum. And then you go to the next piece. Boop, forgot about that one. And you're looking at the next one. So the Scripture is like a, a work of art. You're entertained. You're curious. You're fascinated. While you're looking at it, as soon as you're gone, boom, you forgot about it. That's what that guy is like. The second guy, Scripture is not an artifact, a museum piece, or a work of art. Scripture is like an MRI or an X-ray. And Scripture is a mirror. Scripture reflects us. It reflects who we are. It pierces us like an x-ray and an MRI. And sometimes when we look at what it exposes, we don't like what we see, do we? But that's God's intent. So when we look at Scripture, it is supposed to be like a mirror, but it's supposed to be like that x-ray or that MRI that diagnoses us. What is our true state? It exposes our sin. It exposes our motives like no human being can do. It demands a response. It's like the caring, loving, considerate, true physician or doctor who reads the MRI and sees there's a tumor. What does he want to do? He, it demands a response. It demands action that is immediate. And that's what it is, what it should be for the doer of the Word. Not a superficial ignoring as a museum piece, fascinated by all the trivial facts of the Bible. Great challenge for us. So when we read Scripture, keep that in mind. Not what I think of Scripture, but what is Scripture doing to me through God's Spirit and its truth. Don't forget it. That's our great challenge. By the way, being an auditor, this reminds me of you know, a lot of professing Christians in American Christianity where the guy in the mirror, he's looking at the mirror. He, he appreciates the mirror of the Bible. He, he does it on Sunday. He goes down and he sits down. He listens to the sermon. Might even throw a buck or two in the plate depending upon the quality of the sermon. Hears it. Then he goes, boom, it's Monday. And he's forgotten about Sunday and he lives Monday to Saturday for himself. And he's not integrating the truth of the Bible into his life or her life. So what he's doing is he's compartmentalizing truth. He's compartmentalizing religion out of his life, living a compartmentalized life. We've got a lot of people who call themselves Christians who do that. We even have Christians who do that. We all actually are vulnerable and can become susceptible to doing that, right? Separating our Christianity and our Bible in various areas of our life, whether it's trying to deal with our in-laws or relatives or difficult people at work or difficult situations, uh, so that's a temptation for all of us. But that's really what they're communicating there when it says he looks at the mirror. Ah, okay, and then boom, he goes and he forgets. He forgets it. It has no bearing on his life as he goes out into the world. So that can be true of a believer who's a false professing believer, but that it can also uh, tempt true believers at times in terms of what's going on in our life. If we're in the midst of trials or temptations or just have the wrong perspective. So... That's why I said in number two, the illustration of not living the Word is shallow hypocrisy. You profess to believe the Word and love the Word, but you don't live the Word. That is hypocrisy. God hates hypocrisy. Uh, let's go on to point number three. After the, uh, the expectation 
regarding the word, the illustration, regarding the word, now the consecration. Three, the consecration for living the word. Consecration can mean a couple of things. One thing it can mean is that you're, uh, you're set apart and for a sacred purpose or uh, you're set apart and blessed by God. And that's kind of the context I wanted to use it here. The consecration for living the word, a blessed life. God promises the believer, this is a great truth. God promises to bless obedience. God promises to bless living Scripture. And this is not to be confused with health and wealth and prosperity. But there, there's true, there's a truth in Scripture that runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation that God blesses those who are obedient to Him and submit to His voice as written in Scripture. And many times that blessing doesn't manifest itself the way we would like. That's sometimes the problem, right? But there's a blessing for obeying Scripture. Let's look at verse 25 and see the blessing. Verse 25, but contrast, unlike the superficial Scripture reader that I just talked about, there are those who are true, who are deep, who take it seriously, where the the Word of God affects their life. It dictates their living. It drives their morality. It determines their ethic. Verse 25, but one who looks intently in a different way, seriously, in a determined manner, expecting results, looking intently, not superficially, at the present law, that is Scripture, the law of liberty, and abides by it or does it, and not having become a forgetful hearer, only an auditor, but rather an effectual doer, this man, this woman, shall be blessed in what he does. That's a promise. You will be blessed. Isn't that cool? Do you want to be blessed? I do. Well, here's a blessing. God, how can I be blessed? Well, you'd be blessed if you do the Word of God, if you obey the Word of God, if you hear God's Word, obey His voice, do what Scripture says, do what Scripture says. Did you know that every believer, every Christian at any given time should be able to sit down, examine themselves, and count their blessings one by one? Really? Because we are, we are a blessed people. And we always have blessings in our life, either that God has done in the past, He's doing right now in the present, and He's sure to do in the future. So any believer at any given moment, regardless of your trial or temptation, should be able to sit down objectively, thank God for the blessings in your life. Now the problem is when you're in the midst of a trial, and especially a hard trial, sometimes we don't see the blessing, do we? Thinking, I'm not being blessed. That's true, that's just the way we are as humans. But there are reasons for that, why we would say that. Why, aren't we, why don't we think we're being blessed? Here are some reasons why... We might not think we're being blessed at any given moment. Number one, it could be that we're just not being objective. Because many times we don't have the ability to be objective about our own life, right? We don't. I know I don't. I need objective uh, data points outside of my life to tell me about what's really going on in my life. We all do. And it's one of the most difficult times to be objective about yourself and your relation to God is when you're in the midst of a trial or a hardship or a temptation. So maybe we're just not being objective, relying too much on itself. And we are so myopic and subjective, we can't even see straight. We can't even see our blessings that are in our life or right in front of us. Uh, Another reason why we might not be able to see blessing in our life is maybe we haven't waited yet long enough. Because that's that's Hebrews 12, where God disciplines those that He loves. And it goes through, and it's kind of chronological. And then there's, there's blessing and righteousness and righteous fruit at the end of the trial. And the process of hardship. It's at the end. So sometimes we say, well, where's my blessing? Well, you haven't waited long enough. You haven't been patient enough. So we've got to be patient. We've got to wait. He's going to say, James is going to say this in chapter 4 later. Man, you need to wait longer. You need to be more patient. God's timing is perfect timing, but God's timing is hardly ever our timing. So maybe it's because we're being subjective, or maybe it's because we're not waiting long enough. We're not being patient on God. We've got to wait more. Patience is a supernatural virtue imparted by the Holy Spirit of God that we cannot conjure up on our own strength. Can't do it. Or finally, and there's probably more, but these are just kind of three of the main ones that I thought of that were true either in my own life at times, people I work with, counsel, or just as I observe, uh, believers. Maybe you're saying, well, I don't have any blessing in my life. Where is the blessing of God in my life? And it could be that you are doing something wrong. That's why he says, he says to believers uh, earlier in verse 16, do not be deceived, brothers. These are Christians who were deceived. So did you know that believers, Christians, true Christians, we can be deceived? We can be self-deceived. We can be de- deceived by our circumstances, which means we have blinders on on a specific situation that's going in our life. We can't see straight. 
And that's why we sit there and ask, well, I don't have the blessing of God in my life. Well, yeah, you do, but you're, there's something wrong. Maybe you're disobedient to Scripture. You're not being a doer of the Word. Well, yes, I am. Well, are you doing everything that the Word says? Or do everything that you know that you're accountable to God for? And you might think, yeah, I am. And then there's objectivity out there that says, no, you're not. Or that says to me, no, I'm not. So that's a challenge. He brings up self-deception two times in about nine verses. So every single one of us needs to examine ourselves and to see, have we been self-deceived? Are we being self-deceived? Even as a Christian, it's so easy to do. The book of Hebrews says that sin deceives us and we all have sin living in us. We are all vulnerable and susceptible to sin which deceives. And Satan is on the rampage, always trying to deceive even believers. So we've got some mighty foes out there between sin and Satan let alone distortions of the truth. So we're all vulnerable to it. So it's a great warning from James. But the good news is, you're going to be blessed if you truly do the Word of God. This comes down to an attitude of submission, being a submissive person. Submissive to the, the, the Word of God. And here, here's kind of the heart of what that means. At the beginning of verse 25, he says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law. What is the perfect law? Well, the perfect law is the Word. It is Scripture. That phrase is used another time in Scripture where the perfect law refers to Scripture, the commands of Christ, the teachings of Christ. The teachings of Christ were written down by the apostles, codified in the New Testament. So the perfect law, and he wants to get more specific because he's talking to Jews, Jews who were taught on the law of Moses in the Old Testament. He doesn't want them to be confused. I am not talking about the law of Moses. I'm not talking about the Levitical law. I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments. That was the law of Moses. That was a different kind of law. What I'm talking to you about Jewish believers and for us as Christians today, I'm not talking about the law of Moses, but the priority is the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of freedom, the law from Christ. In the context, as it's given in another passage, the law of liberty is the law of love. And Jesus said that love fulfills the law. So he's talking about the new covenant law. It's called law because law speaks of authority. The Word of Jesus is our ultimate authority. The Word of Jesus, as it was written down in Scripture, is the ultimate authority. That's why the Scripture of the New Testament here is called a law. It just simply means authority that is binding, universal, unchanging in our life as a Christian. It is the final authority. We must all bow the knee and have a submissive attitude to what Scripture says. That's what he's saying. And if you're a Christian and you're sensitive to Scripture and submissive to Scripture and try to obey Scripture as best you can, God will bless you. You'll have blessing in your life. It's guaranteed as a promise. It is a promise. That's what he says. And even the words, all the words he uses, it is uh, the perfect law by perfect. The New Testament, written down in Scripture, it is perfect. It is flawless. It is pure. It is without error. I love that passage that... Tim Wong read earlier in Psalm 19 because it talks about the law of God, Scripture as it is written down, that it is pure, it is supernatural, it is able to transform and change people's lives. It is the very word and life-changing power of God. That is Scripture. It is perfect. It is without error. How dare we question it? And how dare we as believers not bow the knee to Scripture? So that's why we need And that's why he talked about humility. Receive the word with humility. Verse 21. What the Bible says, God says. And then the next question is, whatever the Bible says, are you willing to obey? I think that's the question I always open up with in a, in a counseling situation with a believer. Because we want to start out with the standard of authority. It is Scripture. It is the Word of God. Do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Yes. Do you believe it is uh, absolutely, totally authoritative and the ultimate last word on the truth of what you and I should be doing? Yes. Okay, then let's look at the Bible. And then let's examine and compare our lives to Scripture. And let's mutually agree to submit to what it says. That's what he's talking about here. The law of love. The perfect law. The perfect law of Christ. That is the law of liberty. Again, it's not the law of Moses because the law of Moses given in the Old Testament was not a law of liberty. That was a law given to expose sin and to show us our need for a Savior. The Old Testament law did not have the ability to save people. God didn't give it for that reason. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament law was a law of fear. If you don't do this, you get your hand cut off. You don't do, if you do this, you get stoned to death. So in a way, it was a legitimate law of fear. The New Testament law is given through Christ, the gospel of Christ, because of his death and resurrection on our behalf and the commandments that he gave as a result and his authority. The New Testament is a law of love. 
So we obey Christ because He saved us. We obey Jesus Christ and His Word out of love and gratitude. That's our motive. That is tremendously different than obeying God out of fear, isn't it? I mean, this is true in parenting. You can have a child that obeys out of fear and a child that obeys out of devotion and love and thankfulness to great parents who provide for them and love for them. This is true even of dogs. You have a dog that comes out of absolute fear of being beat to death by its master, and then you've got another puppy dog who just comes out of absolute devotion and loyalty to their loving master. So it's pretty much true across the board, and this is true of us as believers We obey the Word of God. We want to submit to the Word of God. We want to do what it says and have it an ultimate authority, not to earn God's favor, not out of fear, but because of what Christ has done for us. He fulfilled the demands of God's righteous law by dying on the cross and absorbing the wrath of God and God's hatred for sin. And Jesus absorbed that in His death. And then He rose again, conquering all that sin on our behalf. Awesome, great truth. And as a result, out of love and devotion for Jesus, saving us, forgiving all of our sin, we are committed to wanting to please Him. Don't you want to please the people you like and love? That's the greatest motive in the world. I love you, Jesus. I want to serve you. That's what he's talking about. The perfect law of liberty. The liberty of Christ's gospel that has set us free from our sins and the the binding requirements that were impossible given to Moses. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Uh, I want to be reminded of some of these blessings. Uh, Just want to read one passage. Let's go to Joshua in your Old Testament. So you go uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you've got Joshua, first chapter. So Moses was responsible for writing down Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. Wrote it down, put it all together, took a long time. He knew he was going to die. He passed it on to Joshua, who he had been training. Joshua takes all that stuff. And now he's responsible for teaching the people and reminding them to know it, to believe it, to obey it. This is the Word of God. This is the Old Testament Word of God. And again, it wasn't uh, given by God to obey it that you might get saved. It was given to show the true character of God, the truthfulness of our own sin, to drive us towards the Savior, to cry out to God for mercy that would eventually be fulfilled in the coming of Christ, His death and resurrection on behalf of sinners. But still, God's law, God's Scripture was to be obeyed by His people and the same result was true that if you obeyed and listened to God's voice, you would be blessed. So I love this verse. Uh, Joshua 1, verse 8. This book of the law, Scripture that Moses gave me from Genesis to Deuteronomy. That's what he's talking about. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, know it. Meditate on it. Read it. Make it a part of your life. You shall meditate or ruminate on it day and night. See, you're assimilating it into your life. Not like a forgetful hearer who just looks in the mirror and walks away. It becomes a part of you. It becomes your standard of morality and your ethic and your worldview. You take it with you wherever you go. And if you do that, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do... See, there's the doer part. Do the Word. Do according to all that is written in it. Be a doer of the Word. If you do, same thing James says, here's the result. For then, as a consequence, you will make your way prosperous. You'll be blessed by God. Now, prosperous doesn't automatically mean, ching, money. Like we think in America. Money, money, money. Hundreds, thousands, zillions of dollars. No, that isn't what he's talking about. True prosperity, true blessing, everything you need in life to grow, to have satisfaction, to have joy, to have contentment, to know God to the best of your ability, that is true prosperity. Starting with salvation. Then you'll make your way prosperous and then you will have success. And that's true success, not success defined by the world. So that is exactly parallel to what James is saying. And all James is saying, obey God and God will bless you. Obey. It's really that simple. It's hard to do though in our sin and in our flesh. Obey God and God will bless you. So I would just challenge you this week, count your blessings one by one. You know, I should write a song. Count your blessings one by one. Write them all down. Saved. Saved. Undeserving, pathetic, loser of a sinner. This is my list. Saved graciously and mercifully by Almighty God and Jesus' death and resurrection on my behalf and I can never lose that salvation. I am secure eternally in Him. Praise God. There's one. Huge blessing regardless of what's going on in my life. And then just keep going and you will see that God's true to His Word. 
He blesses His Word. He blesses the obedience. Okay, now, here's the last thing I want to do. And I had to cut back big time on this because this probably would have taken... This, would, this is practical application that I think would have taken 25 more minutes and that'll take us to 1 o'clock. So I should probably shorten it. So I will. So I thought, wow, we are commanded as believers to, do, to be doers of the Word and to obey what God says. So where do we start? Well, I would recommend that you start with every imperative or command in the New Testament. That would make for a great Bible study. It'd take you a while. But just start in... You know, skip. Well, yeah, you could use the Gospels, and every time Jesus says "do this," man, write it down. They say that there were over 600 some odd laws or commandments in the Old Testament. I bet you there's just as much, if not even more, in the New Testament. Commands given by Jesus or the apostles that we are expected to obey and do. And we don't do these things because we're legalists. We don't do the word and do the commandments of God to earn God's favor. We do them out of love and gratitude. To God, and we do them because we have a supernatural ability to, because He's given us the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, and also principles of how to do it, the Word of God, and through the gift of faith. So we've got to keep it in the proper context of why we as believers are committed to doing and obeying God. It's not to earn His favor and earn our salvation, contrary to the rest of the world. I bark not to become a dog, I bark because I'm a dog. That is a profound proverb. Think about the implications. But anyway, I obey not to become a Christian. I obey because I am a Christian. So what I did is I cut out the 732 imperatives of the rest of the New Testament and just shortened it to the book of James. So here we go. I'm just gonna, Don't try to write this down. Just listen. I'm going to fly through. These are all the imperatives in the book of James that he expects believers to do. And if you feel guilty at some point, that's okay. I felt horrible as I was writing this thing down. Oh, there's another one I'm not doing. Oh, I forgot about that one. Oh, I violated that one yesterday. It's painful. But this is the mirror that we all need to look at, isn't it? Of what God expects and what reveals our own heart. So here's James' expectations, imperatives for us. Here we go. Chapter 1. Consider trials as growth opportunities. Ask God for wisdom in the midst of trials. When you ask God for wisdom in trials, ask in faith and don't be doubting. Be humble. Don't be arrogant. Don't blame God for your problems or your mess that you're in. Don't be deceived. Be quick to hear the Word. Be slow to be flippant about your opinion about the Word. Be slow to get angry in response to the Word. Put aside wicked, evil habits in your life. Submit to biblical truth when you hear it. Obey Scripture. Chapter 2. Don't show favoritism, partiality, or prejudice prejudice towards people, especially in church. Be gracious towards all people. Be gentle and not abrasive. Don't be arrogant. Be humble. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Confess your sins. Confess your sins to one another. Don't be double-minded. Be miserable. Mourn and weep over your sin. My sin. Humble yourself before God. By the way, the command to humble yourself keeps coming up over and over again. Kind of key. Don't talk about other believers behind their backs. Don't judge the motives of other believers. Don't boast about your future plans. Don't be arrogant. Don't violate your conscience. Don't love wealth and material possessions. That was chapter 4, sorry. Chapter 5. Long for Jesus' return. Be enthusiastic about it. Think about it. Don't complain about other believers. Whoa. That's pretty practical. That's important for me as a pastor. Don't complain about other believers. I don't think there's, there's not much that actually bothers me more than this one as a pastor in a local church when you have members complaining about other members behind their back to me. Because my next question is always, have you talked to that brother or sister in the Lord? No. Ouch. You need to. You are gossiping. But I also am vulnerable to that as well. But very practical one. Don't complain about other believers. Uh, So this is chapter 5. Don't make 
false priorities. Keep your word. Do what you say. Pray when you suffer. Rejoice in God when life is good. If you are sick, ask the elders to pray with you. Not pray for you, pray with you. Confess your sins to each other. We have to confess our sins to God, but we also have to confess our sins to each other. I thought about this when I read this verse. I was thinking, okay, have I had to confess my sins to another human being in the last seven days? Oh, yeah, whoa. Uh, how about the last couple of days? That's just a good thing to be thinking about because it's an ongoing regular practice we need to be doing. Confess your sins to others, says James 5. Uh, help believers who are straying from the truth. Well, that's a good one. And you'll be blessed if you do. So that's just in the book of James. All these imperatives and commands uh, that God expects us to do because we are, He knows we're able to do them and we actually have a right motive for His glory, for our good, because of His love towards us. And as a result, God's promise is that you and I will be blessed. So I, my heart's desire is that for all of us here at GBF, we're going to be attentive to the Word of God what God requires of us and that He's just going to continue to keep us humble and our hearts soft so we can keep seeking to be doers of the Word, obeying Him, submitting to Scripture, and as a result, in His goodness, He will bless us. Isn't that exciting? Let's go to this great, good, gracious God together and pray. Father, we thank You for for the treasure of your word, it reveals who you are, uh, what your expectations are for us. Thank you that it reveals truly who we are as well. That we are sinful, we are weak, uh, we are needy, we are inconsistent. But with salvation and in Christ, we are the children of God and that never changes. So we thank you for that great truth. God, help all of us in this congregation to be sensitive to your word that we, we would be reminded that you call us doers of the word we are slaves you are our master not only that we you are our savior thank you for that thank you for the gift of the holy spirit that enables us to obey in a way that pleases you and then we can also do it through simple faith believing you trusting you god i just pray that you help every single one of us of any particular trials and struggles or temptations that are weighing us down or deceiving us or discouraging us. God, liberate us. Liberate us through the truth of Your Word, the power of Your Spirit, the gift of salvation, that we might be blessed and have the blinders taken away in recognizing that You are indeed blessing us and You are worthy of our praise, adoration, thanksgiving. We give You the glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.